0: Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support.
1: As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing; they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So, whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com/slash/AI-safety-security again. HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security.
0: just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocket FM 24. That's pork porkbun, P O R K B U N dot com forward slash rocket FM 24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you today by Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll, benefits and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be part of a big company to get great technology, great benefits and a great service to take care of your team.
1: To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You sign up today, you will get 3 months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com/ slash Rocketship. Again, gusto.com slash Rocketship. Today on the
0: show, we welcome Ash Mori, who is the creator of the Lean Canvas, which you've probably heard of. And he's also the author of Scaling Lean, which teaches you how to scale using the Lean methodology. So you're not going to want to miss this one. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore business from culture to sales, from product
1: to growth, and everything in between. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. where your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito.
0: Well, well welcome on, on the show. Really excited to, to have you and, and talk about you know, Scaling Lean and the Lean Canvas today. So, so Ash, if you could start, kind of give me the, the background on the Lean Canvas, and then we'll get into your newest book, Scaling Lean.
2: Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. Um, So I often tell everyone the same kind of backstories. My one-liner bio is I'm a practicing entrepreneur. Uh, I happen to share some of my learnings along the way, and that started off as a blog, turned into a book, and then the Lean Canvas. Um, So for those of you that may not know what the Lean Canvas is, it's essentially a one-page business planning tool. So rather than spending time writing a large document and do all this excel magic wizardry and forecasting uh, we condense all that into a single page simply because when we start we don't quite know everything about the business in fact we know very little and so it, it doesn't make sense to do over planning so that kind of is that quick intro on what the canvas is it gets you to deconstruct the idea and then identify kind of next steps from there
0: so um how many iterations do you go through to you got to like the lean canvas that we know today
2: Ah, so the Lean Canvas does have its roots in an original business model canvas that was put out by Alex Osterwalder as part of his PhD in Switzerland, mm. and I first started riffing with that one. So I used that for a little while and felt that at least for early stage entrepreneurs, when there's lots of uncertainty, some of the things he was having you focus in on were more kind of later stage concerns like key partners and things, things of that sort. So I began to riff on it, and it I did the first iteration um, in a few days, and I put, a, put it out on a blog post, and it was well-received. But there were some minor tweaks from there, which maybe took a few more weeks. And then a lot of what I do is put things out, test, refine. Um, Fast-forwarding to today, we have built an online tool. Um, the canvas itself is uh, has not changed, but we've built a
0: whole bunch of other tools around it. And what are the, um, for those that might not be familiar, um, what are kind of the the elements or the questions that you're answering um, on the canvas?
2: Yeah, so I'll start off with the thing that you will often see entrepreneurs do, um, and this is what I call the entrepreneur's bias or the innovator's bias, is they will spend a disproportionate amount of time talking about the solution. And I was in that same exact camp. You'd get on stage and you've got a five-minute presentation. Four of those minutes are about how great our solution is going to be. And one of the big epiphanies that I had, and I had been a practicing entrepreneur, a technical founder, but I realized that the, business, the, the, the solution itself is only a part of the true product. The true product is this business model that you're creating. Um, and that's when I began to gravitate towards the business model canvas, because it was a way of looking at the business more holistically. So some of the questions we ask in the Lean Canvas you know, sound very basic, but it's amazing how many people don't think about these things. So everyone starts off with their solution and that's fine, You know, but we ask you to park that on the side. There is a box for the solution, but we have people first talk about who their customers are. So imagine a perfect world where your solution is out there. Who would use your product? And then who might be the early adopters? Who might be the folks that want this above everyone else? Um, Once we can start with that box, we then shift over to the problem side and really ask ourselves, why would they use your solution? So what problem are they trying to get done today? And that is usually the hardest thing to get right. And (laughs) often, if you get the problem box wrong, as you can easily tell, your solution is not going anywhere because you're not really solving anything for anyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, So usually that's the, the foundation of the canvas. And then the other boxes on there are about things like channels. So how will you get your solution in front of those customers um, your unfair advantage how would you defend against competition uh, cost structure revenue streams kind of business model cons- considerations for how you might build this? you know can, do you have do you have to raise money um, where does the where does the money come from so the revenue stream again, I can't tell you how many entrepreneurs just build a great product out there and don't ever think of the revenue stream they defer that to later, which in my book is one of the riskiest things to do is because there is no business in the business model without, and of that sustainable revenue source coming
0: in, yeah, and we're finally kind of seeing a pushback on that on that model, which is nice. Um, yeah. and I'm sure you know tools like this help to inform people, you know, um, as they're building. But um, so let's talk a little about scaling lean and the why. Um, you, know, you know, why? Why was this book necessary? This this kind yeah. of second book in the series. <laughs>
2: Yeah so so after running lean came out I found so running lean was all about activating people kind of as I said the big epiphany was don't just fall in love with the solution think about the customer and the problem and so the canvas has done well it's spread and it's being used in a lot of places but then people came back to me and said you know the canvas story is good but when I go to my stakeholders they still want to see the financial forecasts and they want to see how we're going to make you know millions of dollars in in 5 years and you still have to do all that work is there something better and so the Scaling Lean book kind of stemmed out of that core question. So, the other way to kind of look at that is I looked at Running Lean as a book that I wrote for the entrepreneur to customer conversation. So, how do you find customers? How do you go in and, and get that early traction in the business? But the Scaling Lean book was more how do you prove that this idea is even worth pursuing in the first place to a stakeholder? Now, a lot of people might say, well, I don't have stakeholders because I don't have investors yet. But the thing I like to point out is that everyone is the most important stakeholder in their own business because mm-hmm. they are investing with time which in my mind is more valuable than money so money can fluctuate up and down but time never comes back so before you start working on that shiny new idea that you have make sure it's worth pursuing and that's the question scaling lean kind of gets you to think about in the beginning and then kind of builds on that throughout the book
0: so what are the some of the the key principles? Um, that that you cover, or you know, even advice that you give.
2: Yeah. So, if we look at the way we have traditionally tried to size a project, we attach it to you know a big market and say, you know, this market's a billion dollars big. If I just get one percent, you know, I'll be fine. I'm not too greedy. Um, the problem with that top-down approach is that it doesn't tell you how you're going to get there. And so, what scaling lean really does, it takes a more bottoms-up model. If we realize that. Revenues come from customer value. We need to first, again, understand who the customers are, and then you begin to model that. So we take a few input assumptions. It's not about the big numbers at the end, but a few input assumptions like the pricing model, like things like lifetime value. You know, what would you charge people? How long may they use your product? That tells you whether you have to replace your customers every so often, or you can rely on them for a while. And just there are four or five inputs that I kind of introduce in the book that you can use to test whether a model will work in the best case scenario or not. And it's amazing how many models kind of fall apart with with that five minute exercise. And beyond that, we then kind of the next big um, kind of message in the book is that too many entrepreneurs try to pursue scale from day one. So Mm -hmm. they try to build this this magic rocket ship that's just going to get them out into deep space. And even rocket ships don't work the first time. So you ha- they have to realize that you've got to build things in scales and have these test flights and all of those types of things. And so the book really presents a way that you can size your business model, but then how do you really build them into a staged launch? Um, the, I guess a great uh, story of this in the news lately was the Tesla Model 3 story, and Elon Musk had this secret master plan, which he told no one and then told everyone, Uh, (laughs) the idea was that if you've got a big vision, like building an all-affordable electric car, they could have locked themselves up for 10 years and do all the R&D and, you know, come up with the infrastructure and all that stuff. And they didn't do that. They actually came up with three cars before the Model 3, and that's an example of this idea of stage rollout, where you're building fewer, um, in their case, more expensive products, but fewer products. Uh, to test some of the riskiest assumptions of the business model, to build a brand, to de-risk the, the business model, and when they're ready for scale, which they are almost now, um, they've got the factories, they've got the infrastructure, and so that that kind of thinking is what the book really tries to to hone in on. Is don't shoot for scale from day one. There is a there is a there is power in deliberately embracing small scale and then leveling up from there.
0: So um, one of the the second chapter is actually a back of the napkin. Um, yeah. Business. T- tell me uh, a bit about that. I-, I love the title and the concept.
2: Sure. So some people might know Enrico Fermi or the Fermi estimation uh, technique. Um, so Enrico Fermi was a physicist. Um, he worked on the hydrogen bomb, like a lot of physicists of his time. But he became really famous for creating some freaky estimations. So he was able to estimate the the potential damage of a hydrogen bomb before the results came in. And he did this just by dropping pieces of paper while the blast radius was going through his office, and he measured how f- how far they traveled and used that to come up with some calculations, and he was off only by, uh, by I think, 1.8 uh, off the actual yeah. numbers. You know, completely freaky. And so now we actually teach Fermi estimation, and even if you have not learned this in school, every time you've had to guess how many jelly beans there are in a jar, that's an example of a Fermi estimation problem. Um, so, so the way that you take a problem like that and break it apart is not by trying to get a precise answer, but by breaking it down into some fundamental assumptions. And so I began talking about this a bit earlier. So if we look at the business model, no different, we can create a spreadsheet with hundreds and thousands of numbers, but anyone that's done that quickly realizes that there are a few pivotal cells in that spreadsheet. Those are the key inputs. So if you change those numbers, like your pricing model or your growth rate, um, the, the, the the hockey stick curve will either look like a hockey stick curve or completely flatten out. Um, And so that's what what that chapter really gets into is how do we apply a Fermi estimation technique to do some quick order of the magnitude, order of magnitude estimations. Only takes five minutes to do, but you can completely
0: invalidate a model in that process. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you today by Gusto. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert on things like taxes and
1: regulations. And there are old school payroll providers that exist, but they're just not built for the modern business. Gusto is
0: making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does
1: the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. Now, again, there is some competition for Gusto out there, but Gusto actually has a lot of things going for them. PC Mag and Fit Small Business, they've called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses.
0: Gusto makes payroll a breeze. In fact, 9 out of 10 users say Gusto is easier to use than
1: other payroll solutions. And Gusto definitely saves you time. 72% of customers, they actually spend less than 5 minutes to run payroll. I know a lot of people that spend way more.
0: Gusto is reliable. 4 out of 5 customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching.
1: And if you don't believe it, just Google it. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually love your payroll provider?
0: Almost never. Most small businesses, they don't have an HR expert, but you don't need one to use Gusto. With great software and great service, you can focus on your business, not on your payroll or your paperwork. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com forward slash rocket ship. That's gusto.com forward slash rocket Now... Back to the show. Interesting. And and what types of things are you looking at? Like the number of customers, how much they're paying, and, and you're able to kind of play with those numbers until you find something that will work?
2: Yeah, so the, the most critical thing is pricing. And I also find pricing is one of the most powerful levers. And when entrepreneurs defer that question to later, um, it puts that business model in, in a lot of risk. So that's mm. a fundamental question. Uh, the next question is the potential lifetime. So, you know, we have one-time use products like books, Um, Now, many authors who build a business around it cannot make a living just by selling books. So they have to create a longer set of lifetime of whether they write multiple books or create other products or do consulting. Um, That's an example of how you have to now think about, you know, what is that potential lifetime? Because as we know, acquiring new customers is very, very expensive, much cheaper to keep existing customers in the business. So those are some of the two fundamental questions we start with. And then we have to understand that to create a customer, you've got to deal with a lot of raw materials or leads. So at least in the software world, uh, some products really have a 1% conversion rate. So what that means is that to create one customer, you potentially have to get 100 you know, decent leads. And so we can use that kind of thinking to really put that business model to test and see if the market, is, in the market that you're going after, is it big enough? Is it not big enough? Um, is the pricing model right? And if not, if you increase it, what do you do next? Now, what's very powerful with that is things like pricing. People would say, you know, you can always play with the numbers. I can double or quadruple my pricing. What does that really do? Um, well, when you quadruple your pricing, the thing that we would do next is get outside the building and in in using the lean approach, go and find 10 customers who will not think we're crazy when we tell them we've quadrupled the pricing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. So you can actually validate that very, very quickly. You don't have to wait three years or, or five years to figure that out.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. Um, and and so when we look at, um, you know, building a, a model around this, what, what does a traction model look like?
2: Yeah, so it, it starts off by thinking I, I throw this concept out of the minimum success criteria, So we often, when you go to an investor, they're looking for the big upside potential, Mm -hmm. and that's very, very hard to estimate. It's very hard to know. Um, And the way that I have people think of this is if if we went back with a time machine and went to Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room and asked him back then, did he think he was going to build a billion dollar company? He would have laughed you and he admitted as much, you know, many times throughout the process that he was just doing something on the side. Never thought it was a real business for, for you know, for several months, maybe even maybe even a couple of years. Yeah. Um, the same story played out with the Google founders. You know, when they had built a successful search engine, they couldn't make the business model work for many years and out of desperation tried to sell themselves to Yahoo for a million dollars. Um, they were turned down, and they went on to build a billion-dollar company. Yeah. So the point of that story is that you, you we cannot estimate the full upside potential, but if we bring it you know, um, not too far into the future, two, three years out, we can begin to talk about what is that minimum success criteria. And that is one of the first things that you start with. And the way that you think of it is that every entrepreneur out there, you, you have to have some number, whether it's a revenue number, whether it's an impact number, Um, You have to ask yourself, if two or three years of my life is spent on this project, what is that minimum outcome I would like to achieve for it not to be a waste of time? And start with that number. And once you have that number, you can test that business model estimation story against that. And if it gets you there, that's great because it gets you at least to your minimum. And then you you have the upside uh, after that. Um, And that's how we build the traction model. So we start with that number. And then the traction model is really just a 10xing. So this is a 10x rule that I described um, in great length in the book. But the idea there is that if you were trying to get 1,000 customers, say, after two years, we don't start with 1,000. We don't even think about 1,000. We just start with 10 customers. And then we level up from there like a video game. So we start with 10. People would say, well, 10 is too easy. Well, when you're first starting out, all 10 of those people could say no to you. Yeah. So we have to prove that they'll say yes. So we just start with 10. Now, if you can get tens of customers signing up we don't say go and double that don't don't just go after 20 or don't just keep doing the same thing because we're trying to hit the hockey stick curve your next challenge is how do i make that 100 customers and after 100 you go to a thousand so we can take that two-year window and not think linearly but think non-linearly and that's exactly if i use that tesla example their first roadster you know sold you know x number of cars and they look to about 10x that with the Model S, and then they're now trying to 10x that again with their Model 3 rollout.
0: Very, and and um, I mean, there's, there's a lot of risk, but what what is the goals that you want to see in that early stage? Like, How do you know when you're on to a good idea, even though you may be losing money?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> so I guess there, there are a few things there. I mean, one of them, a lot of the process that I talk about in both books is about, testing the riskiest part of the business model first. Okay. So if you think of the game Jenga, when we play Jenga, we try to find the strongest pieces and move those ones out of the way. As an entrepreneur, you have to do the exact opposite. You have to find where is this model going to break. And the reason we do the 10xing and we start at small scale is that when you're talking to 10 people, if all 10 of them say no to you, that's fine. I'd rather get that news today than when I think I'm going to have hundreds of people six months or a year from now. So that's that's the first part of it. Now, the reason that 10xing also works is that in most products, not all of them, but in many of them, the biggest risk doesn't tend to be technical risk. Um, and we can see this play out over and over again. You know, Facebook grew from zero to a billion people. And yes, they had lots of technical challenges, but they stepped up and, and, uh, and did it. YouTube did the same. So we can overcome technical risk. The thing we can never overcome is customer and market risk. If you build something nobody wants, it's game over. And so what this process literally lets you do is when we say go out and find 10 people, we're not saying 10 people will validate the model, but the thing we're looking for is complete invalidation. So if people say, no, I don't want this, we fix that first. And if we can get the 10, we then go after 100, and then that brings new risks to play. So now you've got to test maybe your channels. You've got to test maybe some scalability of your solution. Once you're in the thousands or hundreds of thousands of users, it shifts from customer market risk more to technical risk. And that's why this process allows you to embrace small scale in the beginning, but then you are leveling up very quickly, uh, depending on the pace at which the ideas are being accepted.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. Um, so what is, um, I guess, what's the part that people get get stuck on the most? Or, or where do they get, they get hung up?
2: Yeah, so this bias that I started talking about, the entrepreneur's bias for the solution, um, I thought you know, I was just the only one that had it, but I find that that's a rather universal thing. So mm. one of the things I've uh, had the privilege of doing is even travel around the world. And everywhere I go, I see nodding heads and people attribute the fact that, yes, they fall in love with the solution. And that to me is the, is, is the pivotal mind shift in all of this. And so the way I sometimes like to explain that is if we think of building a solution, it's a lot like building a key, but we don't know what door it's going to open. And so we, did, we then take that key and try it on every possible door to see will it open a door to get somewhere. A much better thing that I've been, been kind of highlighting more lately is this idea of loving the problem, not the solution. So when we start with customers and problems, we actually build, we first identify the doors we want to open and then attempt to build keys that can open those doors, which I think is a, in, a, in, a, in retrospect a much better uh, strategy.
0: Very, yeah. Yeah. Um. And, and, but when you're, when you're building a, like a, you know, a key to open up a door, but you don't know what door it's open, um, isn't that in itself uh, a bit risky?
2: Ah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I'm saying not to do. And oh,
0: sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, and, and that's unfortunately what
2: people are doing. So a much better way would be, you know, again, I'm just, you know, identifying those doors. Yeah. Seeing, you know, what, maybe what are the existing solutions out there and why are they failing?
0: Um, and then you can build a much better key into that door. You write a lot about um, metrics and, and some of the data that you look at on the early side um, and, and how it can even be you know kind of fool for you. Um, what, what are some of those those um, what, what are some of the, the aspects that people tend to use are on the data side that uh, may not be as accurate as it could be?
2: Yeah. So I think there's a lot. And in the lean startup world in general, we talk a lot about this love for vanity metrics. You know, mm-hmm. we always want to convince ourselves that the idea is 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 okay. And, you know, we're seeing all this traction and we use traction and we use metrics kind of very loosely. And so also in the next book, I, I take a much stricter definition of traction. And for me, that definition is that it it needs to be a measure of some customer behavior. So getting mm-hmm a bunch of downloads or getting a bunch of visitors is could be a leading indicator of traction, but until you can capture some monetizable value from your users, that is not yet traction. Um, so the, so I have a very kind of strict definition in the book, but that's one thing that I have been trying to get into people's minds. If you look at a business model, it really does three things. You create value for customers, um, you figure out how you're going to deliver that value to them, whether that's over software as a service, you know, wh- whatever that ends up being. Um, and then you have to capture some of that value back. And the quicker you can demonstrate those three things, so for each of them you can attach a metric to them. And to me, those are the three metrics I have everyone just think about and start with day one. But the closer you can you can connect your business model story to those three metrics, even at small scale. Even if you went and said, I talked to a hundred people and I got ten paying customers, to me that is huge and that's progress because you got to create value, you got to deliver value, and you got to capture value back. Which getting that first customer is what I sometimes will call the singularity moment of of any product. It's so you've mm-hmm. created something out of nothing. So it's a, it's, a, it's a moment to celebrate.
0: And I, I love the the example of like looking at the signups. You know, like the cumulative versus you know monthly signups. Yeah. Um, because it's easy. Uh, it feels good to look at the cumulative. You know, it just keeps going up.
2: And can never go down. Yes. Right.
0: <laughs> and and that I I feel like is the ultimate. I don't know, vanity, um, you know, when, when you look at that chart, you're you're doing great. Um, but it could be telling a, a much different story underneath, yeah?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think with, with anything, and, and that's, I think, a key point is that when we look at a metric, it's not so much the metric itself. So nothing wrong with signups, because that shows that people are entering the door, they're interested in our product. So nothing wrong with the concept of measuring signups, but we sometimes fool ourselves with how we measure it. So that's a classic example of, if I just accumulate, aggregate all my signups since the beginning of time, that number is always going to go up and to the right. And I can convince myself, wow, we've got 100,000 signups. But if I look at number of active users, there may only be a thousand of them. Right. That's, that's the real reality.
0: And then there's actually a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, so is there, is there anything else um, that you would like people to take away uh, from the book when they, when they read this? Um, what, what is the big thing that you want them to change?
2: Yeah, so I think the the big thing is starting to figure out, uh, so it, it, there are th- those two big ideas in the book is how do you size a business model kind of day one? So how do you tell a story, ideally to a stakeholder, whether that stakeholder is you, an investor or someone in your company that, that holds the budget, and get them excited? And so that gets everything kind of going. But then how do you really communicate a stage rollout model? Instead of saying, judge me uh, because when we write business plans we tell our investors to judge us on the same rules that we judge large companies and that never works and so you need to have a conversation with them where you say i'm not going to go and get you to thousands of customers in a month but we're going to start in this stage rollout manner and that's going to prove that this model works and then at the right time we can add more resources and and make all this uh work and both of us kind of win at the end so those are the two fundamental conversations that are the two types of conversations that I talk about in the book, and then there's a lot of like tactical uh, ways of kind of the modeling and then the testing, and then how do you actually communicate all that? So how do you run, for example, shareholder meetings where it's not just figuring out what that best vanity metric looks like for today and putting that on the screen, but rather how can we use our stakeholders in a way where we can really identify whether the business model is working or not, and if
0: not, what can we do to actually fix that? Um, so that to me is the fundamental message of the book awesome awesome I mean we're, we're really excited where where can we find the book um, and keep up with you online yeah so the book will launch next month
2: June 14th is the uh, official date uh, we do have a page up at scalinglean.com you can also just find it everywhere on Amazon um, so that would be where I would point you uh, to, go, to go look for it
0: awesome well thank you so much alright thanks so much Huge thanks to Ash for coming on the show today and sharing this with us. I learned a ton. I hope you did too. If you get value out of these podcasts, leave us a quick review. It helps us spread the show. It's your way to support the show and what we're doing here at Rocketship FM. If you want to listen to more episodes, you can probably find them right in your podcast player, but you can also go to Rocketship.fm. We've got a lot of additional content there. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which we've partnered with Product Collective, like Belcedo's company, to provide you with even more amazing content each week. Uh, specifically focused around product and growth which as entrepreneurs it's one of the most important topics for us to stay up on find more information about that at rocket fm we've got a bunch more amazing content coming up here for you so stay tuned we'll be back here in just a couple
1: days